Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen, and with me are Devinder Hardwar, Jeff Kanata, and joining us today, she is managing editor and chief film critic at Pajiba.com, Christy Puchko. Welcome back to the Slash Filmcast, Christy. How hey are you guys. doing today? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk Toy Story Four. Yeah, that's All what right. we're doing today. Uh, and Christy, uh, I think uh, Pajiba.com uh, recently celebrated its 15th anniversary. Is that right? Yeah, uh, yeah. As as far as Dustin can pin down a number, because he kind of started it uh, <laughs> haphazardly. But I mean, it's really an incredible thing. Like it was basically something he started with some friends, and fifteen years later, like you know, we have writers uh, around the world, and we have uh, really fun pieces every day. Some of them that are political, some of them are about entertainment, some of them are really, really weird. But all of them, I'm pretty proud of. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great family. Like I've written a lot of places, but, uh, my heart belongs to Pajiba. Like I really found my voice there because, uh, or the readership is just so intense and like you, you want to appease them. And like the fellow writers are so encouraging that you want to live up to the standards that they set in their own writing. Like it's, I'm very lucky. They're really a wonderful place to write. And you must have been, what, six when it started? <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just a baby. It's great. So uh, Pajiba.com, great site. P-A-J-I-B-A.com is where you can get to that site. And I, I recently enjoyed one of your articles there, uh, Christy, entitled The Film Twitter Meltdown That Started With a Creepy Craft Project. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, was, was, that was fun. This is, like, this is a great article because it kind of like – Twitter goes by so quickly, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, one one of the things I don't like about it is like you, we experience like we as people who use Twitter experience lots of amazing moments on Twitter, and they're just like lost forever, like tears and rain. To quote, yeah. uh, to quote, uh, what's it? Rucker Hauer in uh, Blade Runner, right? And and so yeah, it really is the saddest. He was totally thing talking about, about Twitter. Actually, yeah. that's a really good analogy. <laughs> he, he was talking, yeah, and it's like it's it's just gone forever and. Uh, what this article does uh, that you wrote for Pajabba.com is it takes like moments like that and preserves them forever so that people can remember uh, all the sick burns that people got in uh, when they're trying to own someone. In this case, uh, an account that really deserved it. This is like an account called At Rare Horror, which like to – it's one of these many accounts that uh, makes a, a career or a, a living off of ripping off other people's work. Um, and they, 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 you know, they like share other people's work without crediting them. And in this case, they got called out for crediting, uh, for not crediting this really cool Etsy piece about like that was uh, a, a recreation of Samara from The Ring. Uh, and so they got called out, and they doubled down on it. Christy, you want to tell us a little bit more about like what happened here? Yeah. So. It was kind of a funny thing. So it's one of those things that happened over the weekend, which I often write stuff for Pajaya that's kind of like, so here's what happened on Twitter when you were paying attention. Because as you said, like people like being on Twitter, but they also really like not being on Twitter. So they, but they still want to know what happened. Yes. Um, but this one was like really playing Twitter detective because it got shady. Uh, so basically at Rare Horror, at the time that it posted this piece, which is an amazing embroidery that was created by Stab and Stitch, which is an Etsy shop uh, that's run by Claire McDougal. She had created this really cool Samara thing and they posted it and said, nice art piece on Etsy, Samara from the ring, but like didn't say who the artist was. And when people were like, yo, credit the artist, which is a very common refrain on Twitter for those of you yep, that aren't yep. on Twitter. Yep. It's extremely just- reasonable too. 
But instead of like just being like, oh, yeah, like they could have just created a follow up tweet that was just like, oh, right. Sure. Here's her shop. Like her name is this or whatever. And yeah. like not would've, made a big deal. Would have ended right there if they'd done that. Yeah. Would have just 100% ended wouldn't right have been there. a big deal. Yep. But instead, they like started justifying to people why they chose not to include her. So it wasn't a mistake. It was something they said they were choosing to do. They were saying that it would look like an ad if they included the link. But again, people were just saying, like, well, say her name. Like, we can Google the name. (laughs) Why go out of your way not to credit her? It just seemed very kind of convoluted. Not only did they tell people, like, oh, well, we're not doing it because of this, this, and this. But then they, like, also just started insulting people. Um, Then basically that got more people upset where they were like, what are you doing? Like, this was such a simple (laughs) solution. And now you're just being jerks. And so horror Twitter is a very passionate corner of Twitter. Indeed. So this made a lot of people mad because this is an account that at that point I think had 96,000 followers that was like exploiting these artists who were creating really cool like horror fan art um, so that they could get followers. And then when people were like, well, just give them credit, like that costs you nothing. Then then it came up that on their website, it actually said that they sell tweets. Um, so it was suggested that maybe if you paid them, that's when you actually accredited. Mm. And then um, basically there were horror directors and producers and actresses who were sharing the Samara work with a link. Right. As whether to directly comment on rare horror or to like subtweet them. And then like another horror site did that. And then rare horror got mad at that horror site and said they're stealing our content, which was like, <laughs> Like, that was when it just went galaxy brain, where you're like, wait, like, what's happening? So, like, all this was going on over the course of the weekend. And, like, when I woke up on Monday morning, I was still kind of, like, it was still being talked about on on horror Twitter. And I said, you know, to my editor, uh, is this interesting to anybody that's not, like, on horror Twitter? Is that enough of a, you know, are our readers going to be interested? But, I, like, one, horror Twitter was really receptive to the article. I think, one, because it showed us in a positive light where it showed us as being really supportive of people who are creative versus people who are trying to exploit the creative to do something to their own ends or whatever. Um, and a lot of like, it got the, the writer or the, the creator, uh, Claire McDougall, a lot of attention. Um, we use her image as the header image, but we credit her and we repeatedly mention in the piece where you can find her work. Yeah. I thought um, that was and- nice touch. Well, um, because, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. It's just like, you know, it's I think on the Internet, everybody likes to think everything is free. And that's just not fair. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not true. And like, you know, the guys at Rare Har, I don't know what their deal is. But then they, they try to try to doing damage control um, where at one point they brought her into it. And she actually joined tw- like Twitter because this was all happening. And they were basically <laughs> like, hey, can you tell people that we're not jerks so that they'll back off? And she did. But then they like turned on her and why is very confusing. And like I tried to piece together like my theory on why in the article, but like honestly, it just seems out of nowhere. Where then they just start blaming her for everything and being like, you're the reason we're getting such hate. And it's like, what is happening? So it was a very, very bizarre thing. And they also at one point decided to tell people specifically like, oh, well, your opinion doesn't matter because you only have 111 followers, but we have 96,000. So because they specifically mentioned how many Twitter followers they had at the start of this, people kept clocking how those numbers were dropping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was just like a spectacular like and and 
not it was the long. thing I, I was checking in on it like little by little and just seeing it like explode and it was kind of fascinating just yeah. to see this whole yeah. meltdown yeah because like it just went it, it went on all weekend where they just kept saying negative so, things to people where where did this end up christy like well, tldr so yeah, yeah yeah so basically um by like i think monday afternoon uh, we posted the article and i was kind of curious to see just if anybody like what people would think of the article, what people would it, I was hoping it made sense because I'm trying to, like I said, like play Twitter detective and be like, there's missing pieces. And I'm trying to glue all this together to show you what happened. And especially because so many of the tweets got deleted. But effectively, not long. I think it was within an hour of our post going live, which may be a coincidence. I'm not taking credit, but uh, their site got locked to private. So. <laughs> only their followers could see what they were saying anymore. And then some of those followers were sharing tweets, uh, which was basically them continuing to be uh, upset about the fact that they felt like they had been treated really badly by the internet. And then it got weird because they changed their handle to rarer horror so that people wouldn't be tweeting at them. But then another account popped up like that day that was also at rare horror. And that's where like, it said something like it's not fun anymore. We're not doing this. Yeah. So it's very kind of confusing. Effectively they're shuttered, but like how it all fell apart in the end is a little shady because we don't know like what happened, but yeah, their, their account doesn't exist anymore. The last I like how I this just... site also just sounds like the, uh, the rural juror basically. Yeah. Rah, 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 rah. yeah. yeah. Also, well... And some people like then just started dunking <laughs> on them for being like, you're sharing like fan art from a wildly popular film franchise. This isn't rare. Like so, <laughs> you're good. You know, in, you're in good. the way of Twitter, um, but I think the upside to all this, because they behave really badly, but the upside to all this was that like horror Twitter really stood up for the artist and stood up for creative people. And like you saw a lot of you saw this woman get a lot of attention, a lot of fans. She said she got a lot of orders. She reached out to me actually afterwards, which was really nice. She just sent me a message to say she appreciated the piece, which was cool. And I told her congratulations. I think what she's doing is cool. And like now she got all this attention. So I'm sorry that she got such weird backlash from them. But this was cool. And um Mike Flanagan wrote to her personally and said that he ordered the Samara thing. Yeah, that's so, like, right. I saw that. I saw yeah, that. Yeah. All so, like, ends well. Yeah. Right, right. Like, it was a story about, like, how to behave badly on the internet, but I hope it'll be a... Like, and I'm glad that we have all the screen grabs because it's a nice cautionary tale of, like, there was totally a way to fix this really early on. And even, like, later if they had been remorseful but they basically i i saw one tweet that said they were sorry but it was a screen grab after they had already locked their account so like what do you want us to do with that you know what i mean so yeah well, I, I, i'm not gonna miss rare horror i didn't like write this article in hopes to bring them down i just wanted people to understand that like there is a there is a reason to just credit the artist how hard is it yeah. you know like i like this thing here's who did it they're the rarest of horror now moral of the story you know if in doubt credit the artist uh and i i'll admit i don't uh 100 do that you know like sometimes i i miss the mark but i try to do that uh and uh you can find articles like that one uh entitled the film twitter meltdown that started with the creepy craft project at pajiba.com which is where christy writes um and we'll link to it in the show notes uh, so this week, uh, we are going to talk about some what we've been watching, a bunch of stuff we've been watching we want to mention, and then we're going to review Toy Story 4. Before that, though, we got a few announcements. We also want to read some emails. Uh, I want to make uh, a couple of uh, important announcements. One is that we are going to be moving podcast hosting companies this week. Um, so uh, in our nomadic podcast existence, we are moving to another company. Uh, and that means like stuff is probably going to break. Uh, and so some of the links might not work and some of the feed stuff or you might need to like refresh 
in whatever app you're using to download us. And so sorry in advance. If you have issues, tweet at us, email us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. We'll try to resolve them as quickly as possible. Um, but yeah, we are moving podcast hosting companies. And so uh, hopefully in a couple weeks, it'll all be all set. But if you experience any difficulties, let us know and be specific. Like, let us know what the issue, like, don't just tweet at us and like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't download the podcast. It'd be like, you know, uh, like I was using this iOS on this device and like, you know, um, at this time of day, you know, at the, you know, like be specific so we can try to reproduce the problem if, uh, if possible. Uh, and we will try to fix it. But yeah, a couple weeks should be solved. All right. Yeah. Uh, other thing I want to announce is uh, I got uh, pretty – I woke up on Saturday morning with the mother of all sore throats uh, and had like this horrifyingly painful post-nasal drip. It is now slightly better, uh, but I may cough or say something – you know, you know, like I might sound weird uh, compared to usual – and if I do, like, we'll try to edit it out, but we might not edit all of them out. And so I uh, just wanted to throw that out there as well. Uh, and finally, wanted to get to your emails. Uh, so on last week's episode of the podcast, we discussed uh, an email from a listener named MJ who had had tried to shame Devinder Hardwar for recommending a movie called Hotel Mumbai. Um, and... Devendra, this guy, MJ, said that you'd recommended Hotel Mumbai because it has Dev Patel kicking ass. Uh-huh. And in fact, Hotel Mumbai does not have Dev Patel kicking ass. But well, he did yeah, not know. Yeah. But what, what he that... did not know was that Devendra never recommended Hotel Mumbai. He recommended an entirely different film called uh, The Wedding Guest. Yes. And uh, even though both films contain Dev Patel, uh, they, not, not all Dev Patel movies are created equal. I think is really Indeed. What, we, Indeed. what we concluded. And so um, after we discovered this in the podcast last week, MJ emailed us uh, and he said, quote, hey, thanks for reading my email on air. I am thoroughly schooled and embarrassed. My apologies to all, especially Devendra, who has a high bar of recommendations for me. So when I saw uh, when I saw Dev Patel's face pop up on iTunes with Hotel Mumbai, I immediately Mandela affected the title out of excitement and subjected my wife to the perils of my own shitty memory. Turns out the wedding guest features a wonderful ass-kicking Dev Patel in full Jason Bourne mode, and you can quote me on that, even though I had to watch it alone. <laughs> End quote. So that it comes in from MJ, uh, <laughs> writing in to apologize to Devinder Hardware, as well he should. Yeah. Uh, so it goes. And he referred to the Mandela effect in that email. You guys familiar with that uh, phenomenon? Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes into effect when I watch that awesome Sinbad movie. Uh, yeah, so it's this idea the that... The Sinbad uh, genie movie that we all remember from our youth <laughs> yeah, when we yeah. were reading Berenstein Bears books. Yeah, Berenstein Bears, right? The idea is basically like when you when you have like false memories, essentially, uh, that uh, that trick you. And Berenstein Bears, like a lot of people think it, it was... I'm one of the people that always thought it was spelled B-E-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. And now that it's uh, revealed to be S-T-A-I-N, I actually think we are now living in an alternate reality. So I'm... I am one of those believers, um, but uh, Bendel effect is a real thing. Okay, uh, another email. This one comes in from uh, JD, who writes in the slash filmcast at gmail.com. Now, now so th- this is a long-running uh, slash filmcast theme of, of Jeff not wanting his child to be spoiled on The Empire Strikes Back 
before they see the Empire Strikes Back. Right? I'm sorry, that was a really intense place for a pause. I was like, Jeff not wanting his child. I was yeah. like, I missed that. Jeff does period, not want his child. Period. Yeah. The also, end. Sorry. also accurate. Some nights, accurate. I'm sorry. I just, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. It's okay. This, it's okay. this would be one of those nights. This, this was a tough one. The the Empire Strikes Back, you don't want it, your, your, your kids to be spoiled in the Empire Strikes Back. You want to show it to them before they've been spoiled. And somebody in a previous email brought up that, hey, Toy Story 2 spoils the Empire Strikes Back. But JD writes in to clarify, uh, I was I, I just heard I'm a couple weeks behind the podcast. I just heard the discussion where you were horrified to learn that Toy Story 2 spoils Empire Strikes Back and, and bow, vowed never to show it to your children. I just want to clear things up for you. There is a joke in Toy Story 2 that goes like this. Buzz Lightyear speaking to Zerg. You killed my father. Zerg says, no, I am your father. Buzz says, no. It is then followed up by lots of jokes about their relationship, which are, which are quite funny. That is it. Although it is an obvious nod to the big reveal in Empire Strikes Back for those of us who've seen that movie, no context is given linking the two movies in any way. They do not say Luke or Vader's name or Star Wars or anything of any kind. I am, if possible, even more spoiler-averse than you are and was mortified to discover all the <laughs> spoilerific stuff hidden in kids' movies. My daughter is now 16, so I went through all this years ago. I just want to assure you that using my own personal experience, my daughter watched Toy Story 2 hundreds of times before seeing Star Wars, we even waited probably a lot longer to show our Star Wars than you are going to wait. My wife has a master's degree in child's development, so she's a stickler to not expose kids to things too young. We watched Star Wars together when my daughter was about 12, and she was devastated by the twist. She was even more upset than Luke. Toy Story 2 did not That's spoil That's what I want! Toy I want Story to devastate 2... my children! <laughs> Toy Story 2 did not spoil it for her because it gives no context. Just like you missed all the inside jokes in Detective Pikachu, your children will miss the reference to a movie they haven't seen. <laughs> but I hope there are a hundred your... other things, by the way, that will spoil Empire at some yeah. point, right? They, yeah. it, it's I mean, a pretty renowned thing to reference. I actually yeah. grew up watching Spaceballs having never seen a Star Wars <laughs> movie wow. and was still surprised when they did the... I I'm saw sure them when they did the re-releases and I was like, yeah. What?! This is so crazy. It's so much like Spaceballs, guys. No, I like at that point I understood it was a parody, but like when I was a kid, I was just watching a movie and I didn't understand. And then when I was older, I was like, oh, but I still like when Luke and Leia kissed, I was like, aw. And my friend was like, what is wrong with you? Indeed. Like, you know, it's possible. I think you buried the lead on this on this email here, Dave. Mm-hmm. What's that, Jeff? And uh, maybe the author himself buried the lead when he said, my wife, who's a child psychologist, <laughs> Is a stickler about not showing things to kids too. <laughs> a stickler? I think it's more like she knows that it's the right thing to do for kids. I don't think he means spoilers. I think he means like trauma-inducing. That visual. is what I'm saying. I'm saying that maybe we should have a broader discussion about the things that we show kids. And now I'm like. Well, maybe I shouldn't show my kids Star Wars until much later because yeah. a doctorate in child psychology thinks it's not a good idea. Yeah, because you, you were planning to show your kids at like age four or something, right? Or I something. mean, I haven't decided yet, but I was trying to do it at a, at a time where, you know, that would it would they would actually understand it. But now I'm, I will say, by the way, a good pre-Star Wars is Avatar The Last Airbender. I know a ton of people with young kids, and that is the thing because it's a very similar sort of like epic hero's journey. Uh, with a big sweeping scope, and that's a good way to get kids into mm. what could eventually be Star Wars. Yeah, I, I thought you were going to say Avatar, the James Cameron movie, which would also be a good one. No, um, I would never recommend that movie. And, I mean, anyway, uh, JD <laughs> says at the end here, I hope this puts your mind at ease about showing them Toy Story two, which is a masterpiece of a movie. So, yes. Jeff, that's uh, not now it puts my mind the opposite of at ease for showing my kids anything mm. because the doctorate in child psychology. Maybe I would love an, a follow-up email yeah. from 
from your wife saying, uh, here's what I think is probably the right time to show kids All stuff. Right. I would All be right. very J- JD, if you're listening to this, which I guess he's several weeks behind, so he's not going to hear this until like, you know, end of September. But JD, when you listen uh, to this, it's, it's only my child's uh, life that's at stake. So, you know, <laughs> take only, your time. It's JD. only Jeff's kids, uh, psychological development at stake here. Uh, please ask your, uh, wife to let us know when is the appropriate time to show your children star Wars. And uh, Jeff will probably take it more seriously than he should. I will take it as gospel. Yep, yep. Nothing could go wrong with that. Because you said your wife's an expert. Yeah. And we... And Dave read an email that I never saw. Yeah. So, uh, that's, yeah, no, I read that in a parenting book. Well, I heard that on a podcast that talked about a parenting book. So that sounds legit. As yeah, a, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, okay, well, those are all the emails you've been, or some of the emails you've been writing into us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Keep them coming in. Let's get to what we've been watching this week. Christy, you've been watching a few things. You saw The Dead Don't Die, which is a movie that uh, our guest last week spoke about. Uh, Lindsay Romain saw that movie twice. I've been seeing a lot of polarized reactions to this movie. Some people are like, this thing's amazing. Some people are like, this is extremely boring and disdainful of horror uh, or the zombie genre, zombie movie genre. What do you think about The Dead Don't Die? I love The Dead Don't Die. I love zombie movies. I love Romero. I think that this is a really smart uh, iteration. I, I'm honestly astonished by people that are bored by it. I am astonished when people say that I, I have a friend who I, I love deeply and who knows a lot about horror movies. I will say way more than I do, but he said he feels like the movie shows no understanding of, of zombie movies. And I was like, one, the references to Romero movies alone, I think counter that, but two, <laughs> um, I'm like the messaging within the film is so much about like Romero style where it's taught the use of the zombies metaphorically and the and the use of the setting, like I just like ten minutes in, I I just thought this. It, it it's one of those movies that to me felt like Jim Jarmusch made it specifically for me, which I super appreciate it because like between this and like Only Lovers Left Alive, like we have a thing going on. Like yeah. I don't know, you know. I wanted this to be a lot like Only Lovers Left Alive, which is a movie I adore so much, sure. even though it's so strange and hard to recommend, right? Well, they're they're totally different movies, but they're both movies that when I watched, I was like, oh, this is this feels like very specifically made to my interest. And like what I like so much about The Dead Don't Die is it is a observational comedy in a very Jarmouche style set against the zombie apocalypse. And it's also set in like small town Pennsylvania, which is where I grew up. So like which is 100 percent references to Romero stuff, like most of his stuff was set in Pennsylvania. It was specifically shot in Pennsylvania. Um, but it's also like just a certain way of talking and interacting with each other. And it's just all these things about this kind of, I mean, the the movie is in some way about the tedium of small town life. Um, but that, that is to an end. And it's like, it's, it's laughing at the characters a little bit, but not in a way that feels like it's making them yokels or anything. It's just laughing at kind of humanity where like, you're literally talking about the end of the world here. And these people are casually standing around and like having like discussions about the weird mortician down the street and stuff. And you're just like, where are your priorities? But it's like, that's also just what you see going on now. Like people are genuinely (laughs) afraid the world is ending. And then we're like, Oh my God, did you guys see what they said on the bachelor? And like, I don't mean to like slant the bachelor specifically because it's about a million things. Like, you know, I, I just talked for a rant about like, you know, a Twitter account that doesn't exist anymore. And like in the grand scheme of things, who cares? But that's exactly what the dead don't die is about 
is about all these things that like allow us to be zombies to the things that are really going on. Mm. Um, so yeah, I love it. I, I just, I watched it. I had the good fortune of watching it with Kimber Myers, who is uh, another film critic. She, uh, she's really wonderful. You should find her on Twitter. She's super fun. But we were like genuinely cackling the whole way through the movie. And, and well, until the finale, because the finale is like, he's done with his jokes in the finale. But like, I think that he, that Jim Jarmusch has a lot to say with this film. I think that the performances are really exciting. I think part of the trouble might be that it is trying to sell itself like a zombie comedy, like Shaun of the Dead or Zombieland. And it's not that kind of comedy. It's not slapstick. It's not broad. It's much wryer. It's much more about conversation and the kind of quirks of how people talk to each other. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just, for me, it just really, it really struck something. Like there's a part where, which I think is indicative of the humor. There's a part where um, uh, Bill Murray's character who uh, he's upset because he is stuck spending the night because of the, he's stuck spending the night next to a, uh, the, the local drunk has recently died and they don't have a place to store her for the night. So she's in like a holding cell. And he says something like, oh, God, even dead, you see, you'd reek of Chardonnay, Marlene or whatever. And it's like just little <laughs> stuff like that where, like, if that makes you chuckle, you will probably like this movie. If you're just kind of like, OK, whatever, then fine. And I, you know, I think there's a lot of space for what horror gets to be and what doesn't get to be. What the dead don't die chooses not to be is scary. It's not a scary film. It's very gross. There's a lot of graphic violence. But, like, it's not being used to an end to, like, scare you. It's not a thrilling movie. It's it's purposely very kind of... I mean, it's a Jim Jarmusch movie. It's mm-hmm. it's a stroll through the end of the world. All right. Well, uh, glad to hear you liked it. I, I think I'll have to check it out now with two, two recommendations on the podcast. Uh, that's The Dead Don't Die. It's out in theaters right now. What else have you been watching, Christy? I got to go to the uh, the first screening of Midsummer, which was super exciting. I'm so jealous. The new oh, you and everybody in that Alamo Draft House. Right, come the on, the new Ari uh, Ari Aster film, which is coming out in a couple weeks. Yeah, uh, and I'll be very uh, cryptic, um, but yeah, he he made Hereditary last year, and Hereditary was one of my favorite films of the year, and I loved what how he takes our expectations and plays with them, but also how he takes deeply personal stories and explores them through horror. And um, like, I got I, to feel, to I feel kind of bad for this guy's therapist, by the way, like what, what does that therapist have to deal with? Cause this guy is putting it all out in his movie. No, but I like, cause if you ever seen Cronenberg, like talk to people, yeah. he seems like yeah, the yeah, chillest yeah. dude in the world. And like Ari's like not that level of like chill yet, but yeah. like, Cronenberg seems like a super well-adjusted person if you just chat with him, but it's because <laughs> well, they there, there is demons the, like, elsewhere. There is the weird historic, like there is a thing that he's not revealed yet, like what kind of inspired Hereditary, right? Like the the family experience well, he's I gone through. I don't think that's ours like that. to know, I but I, like, yeah, he yeah, has yeah. spoken more broadly about how his fear, he began to fear that what if we are basically doomed to live the lives of our, like what if our DNA dooms us to whatever? Yeah. Like yeah. what if we can never escape the things about our family we don't like? In ourselves, you know what I mean, and I feel like that's what Hereditary is about. This is uh, also a personal story. Um, if you want to know specifically the broad strokes, I go into it in my review at Riot Material. Um, but Dave has very gently requested for me to not give plot details, so um, I won't say what he said at the before the movie started at the Alamo. Even me, I was like, <gasps> I'm like, I'm I not was, a spoiler. This averse, movie but... seems sunny, right? How could it be scary well, or horror? So great, right? So it's, Again, like The Dead Don't Die, this is a different kind of horror. I do think it is scary, but it's not like Hereditary. I was not, uh, I genuinely had like a panic attack at Hereditary. Like I was actually gagging the first time I saw that movie and I couldn't sleep until like 5 a.m. 
Midsummer didn't have that effect on me. Midsummer actually made me feel great. Uh, it, you know, cleared up my acne and all that kind of stuff. Like I, I feel like it made me a happier, jollier person by the end. Uh, maybe it's the sunshine. Maybe <laughs> I just need to go to Sweden for need a creepy cult. Um, but no, I, I think Midsummer's a very, it's interesting. And again, I go into my review and I'm, I'm trying to be careful so as not to spoil the experience, but it is similar to hereditary in kind of like themes and some structural elements, but it is a very different kind of horror for one thing. Yeah. Most of it is set during the daytime. That's they're not like hiding a lot though. I would say don't watch spoiler or trailers. Cause there are some things that I would not want to know in advance <laughs> that are being played in trailers now. Um, but like it is mostly set in the daytime and the people are super cheery and like, but you know, there it's what I like about it is that it is about a kind of horror uh, that is not so explicit and it was really fun to watch it. It's actually kind of funny, but again, like I feel like people are going to misunderstand because critics came out being like, it's hilarious. And I'm like, I want to say like, it's like critics version of hilarious, which is a different thing. We're like, we're kind of so excited because we didn't expect it to be funny at all. And it is funny, but it's not right, like, you're, right. you know, you're not going to go see train wreck or, you know, ghostbusters. That's, it's not that kind of thing. Um, and I wouldn't call it a horror comedy. It's not, that's not what it's doing, but there is a observation, observational humor at it in it. And it's funny. Cause there was like a couple sitting next to me that I didn't know. And for like the first 30 minutes of the movie before they've like actually kind of like gotten into anything, to uh harrowing they just kept kind of clucking at each other like mm, yeah mm, i agree mm-hmm. and it was just really kind of funny but like um yeah i i really love midsummer i think it will probably be among my favorites of the year because it's just huh it was both what i wanted and not what i expected if that makes any sense um so highly recommending midsummer it comes out soon and if you want more details uh it's in my review for riot material and i don't go very heavy into spoilers but there's some implications about what happens in it toward the end so if you don't want to know that just skip the last paragraph i am very excited about that film midsummer will be on mm-hmm. a few weeks in theaters uh, and Chrissy, you're also working on uh, a series for, I want to say, pajaba.com. Is that right? I'm doing a list coming up for uh, to celebrate uh, Pride Month. I know Pride Month's almost over. It's been kind of a hectic month. Uh, but I love horror movies, and I am an LGBTQ person. So I wanted to do a thing combining those two things. So I'm doing a list on kind of what I think are the best uh, LGBTQ movies. And it's been a really fun thing to put together because, like, when I pitched it, I had a very specific list in mind. And then I was like, I should really do my day job and so I tweeted out like, hey, what's your favorite queer horror movie? And like the responses I got were so all over the place uh, that it was a real challenge. And I basically just kept kind of like putting off actually like finishing my list because I kept wanting to like see more things that people were getting excited about. Um, so I wanted to talk briefly about two of the things that are going to be on the list. And then uh, you can look for, for it on Sci-Fi probably later this week. Uh, the the completed list of of the things that I think you should see if you love horror and if you want to see how horror has chosen to represent queer people for better and some cases for worse over um you know its history. Uh, but I for the first time ever saw The Hunger, and I'm mad at myself that I haven't seen it sooner. I feel like the reason I didn't was because when people talked about The Hunger, I took their conversation about it to me and it was going to be some kind of like heightened like arty horror that wasn't going to speak to me personally um but like it's tony scott's first movie which like 
Tony Scott, like Tony Scott, who did like Top Gun and Domino and like a right, bunch of right. super macho movies. Uh, I don't know if you consider Domino macho. That was just for some reason the first <laughs> movie that popped into my head. I don't think um, anyone has referenced Domino in the past decade. So congratulations, Christy. You know, here's here's the dark detail of why Domino is forever in my head <laughs> is because that I went to L.A. for the first time and I went and actually visited Tony Scott's grave because there's like this cemetery where you can walk around wow. and kind of take everything in. And he's uh, he's buried really close to Anton Yelchin, actually. Uh, but he his filmography is on the grave. And I remember just being like Domino. And it was just like, for some reason, that's burned. Now it's now etched in my brain is that, yeah, Tony Scott wow. directed Domino. Anyway, I feel like a lot of directors won't want to do that. But that's that's fascinating that's to hear. About it's literally every movie. I was like, it wasn't even like selected highlights. It was like, nope, everyone. With the Rotten um, Tomato scores right beside them. Right. Sure. Oh. <laughs> uh, but so Tony Scott, this was his, he had been directing like commercials and stuff. And he decided he was going to make his first movie. And it is like a vampire movie starring Catherine Deneuve, David Bowie, and Susan Sarandon about like bisexual vampires who are like. All right. It's just, I mean, that's all you need to know, right? I don't know. I like, I were 10 minutes into the movie and it was like just ferociously erotic. It was made in 1983. So there's like a lot going on at the time. And like, you know, it's Bowie who has like been kind of this like queer icon for a while at this point and like. Catherine Deneuve, who just does, she just does all kinds of really taboo smashing cinema. And then Susan Sarandon, I think this would have been after Rocky Horror, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just like they all collide into this movie that the plot is like, I did like while watching it, read the Wikipedia entry because I was like, am I following this? And like, also, I watched <laughs> it while I had had some wine. So I was like, maybe I'm not following this. But I was. I understood it. It was just that I was like, oh, no, this is a real weird plot. Um, cause it involves like progeria studies and like monkeys it's whatever, there's a lot going on in it. Um, but like the hunger was, I, what I was really moved by was that there is such a, a textured sensuality to this film and it gets tricky because it's another one of those movies that paints like bisexuality as like an inherent danger as like, you know, bisexuals is like ravenous or whatever. Um, but if anybody is going to portray my people <laughs> as a ravenous bisexual, I want it to be Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon and David Bowie. Like, <laughs> fine, go for it. Um, but no, I, I genuinely was really struck by how like beautiful and how very 80s it is. Like, there's a lot of like gauzy drapes blowing around and like Susan Sarandon, you can tell she's a serious scientist because she has a short haircut. Um, and like, there's just some fabulous fashion moments. And I, it's so, so terrific. It's uh, I rented it on Amazon Prime. Um, so it's it's easily it's pretty readily available to find. Um, but yeah, highly recommend The Hunger. Uh, have you guys seen The Hunger? Have not. Yeah. Um, no, that's always been that's been like one of those Netflix movies that has been in my queue. I think forever right. when it's been around, I just never got around to it. Yeah. I kept assuming I wouldn't be in the mood for it. And I was like, well, now's the moment. And I was like, oh, my God, I would be in the mood for this so much of the time. What was I doing? Um, but I feel like if you like only lovers, like you'll like this. It, they're not they're just like there's just a certain kind of sensuality to it only lovers is like definitely more like chill but i feel like this this had to have been an inspiration there's just so much going on in this that feels like a precursor um and then the other one i watched because uh a colleague of mine at sci-fi wire wrote a piece on nightmare on elm street 2 freddy's revenge <laughs> which is a movie i've avoided because i thought it sounded very silly and when people talked about how it was gay i thought oh i just don't know that i like need that like i felt like it sounded inherently kind of 
offensive and annoying and like it was it was going to be like being gay is this horrible thing like being taken over by a serial killer which is a hundred percent like what the plot is but also that kind of makes sense because return of the repressed is a thing that happens in horror and sexuality is often demonized in horror uh it's just that this time it's explicitly the sexuality of a teen boy uh instead of a teen girl who's being chased and you know targeted because how dare she have a sexual urge um so it's 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 problematic it is but uh it was really fun to watch and real wild because i was just kind of like how did they get away with making this movie like there's so many close-ups of like male parts like specifically like there's like a close-up where like he's dancing around and just thrusting his crotch and you're like what is happening in this movie like there's a dance number in the middle of this movie okay and then there's like a scene where another kid like which I don't, I was not a boy in gym class, so I don't know how this works, but like one boy pulls down another boy's like sweatpants and he's only wearing a jock strap. So now everyone gets to see his ass. And I was like, is that, do boys not wear, which I'm not asking you guys to Boys do that not to typically wear jock straps in gym class. That is, a, that is like, a very specialized you, thing. Would you not want to wear an underwear over that? It feels like. Uh, well, let me tell you. Don't. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's it. A, goes, that's it it, it, it is have... like Superman's underwear. It goes over. It goes over your underwear. But uh, oh, okay. So then, yeah. but it would make sense that he would have both on and not just be like bare ass under his sweatpants. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's not in this movie, so spoilers for that. <laughs> um, but it's like beyond just it's beyond just the idea that there seems to be a male on male gaze, which is pretty rare in horror. It's also like the whole thing is about this guy who who cannot like. The whole, like, the plot of the movie is that, like, his girlfriend wants to have sex with him and he doesn't know how to deal. And, like, oh, you no. know. Right, right. And some, people have, like right. Yeah. and some people have read the the ending to be, like, in supporting heteronormativity, but it could also be read potentially as, like, a bisexual allegory. But uh, I was really pleasantly surprised by just how weird and fun this was to watch because, like, some of the Freddy movies, to me, are just not my favorite kind of slasher. Um, but yeah, it, Courtney... it goes to bad places. I feel like they turn Freddy into like the joke, right? And it's yeah. not into like nightmare where they kind of bring it back around. Um, one, what right. I love one, two is a movie that I've always found kind of silly, but I'm definitely up for revisiting. Three is genuinely great though. I love dream warriors. They're kind of like a big blur in my head because like I, I watched a lot of those being introduced by like teens that like I was too young to be watching a lot of those movies, which might also be why like my initial reaction to them is like, no, thank you. Because <laughs> um, I like slashers, but the Freddy stuff felt very kind of something. Um, and that's not like a judgment call on them because I haven't watched most of them in a long time and I had never seen this one. So mostly it was just really fun to kind of confront my own like bullshit on why I had ducked certain movies that are like considered such part of the canon in, in this mm -hmm. area. And it was really fun to watch them. So those will be on the list. Those are maybe not surprising additions to the list, but I have some newer things and some less expected th things on. And I'm really excited about this. I've, I've put way more man hours into it than I probably <laughs> should have. Cause like at a certain point you're like, you've seen enough, but I was just like, I kept just finding excuses to be like, just one more, just one more. So. Uh, well, that's the Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and the list will be at sci-fi.com, right? Uh, I'm terrible at this. Hold on one sec. We <laughs> like Because <laughs> it's sci-fi wire. It is sci-fi.com. S-Y-F-Y dot com. All right. Cool. I nailed it. Um, <laughs> nailed it. But uh, yeah, uh, that's what Christy's been watching. Divin your heart or what have you been watching? A couple of things. Um, I want to preach the gospel of Neon Genesis Evangelion. Mm. And you might have heard uh, a lot of hubbub about the series. Yeah, just hit Netflix, Netflix, right? Yeah. Just hit Netflix. Um, let me tell you, in my day, 
Okay, in my day, I had to rent uh, VHS tapes of Neon Genesis Evangelion, which contained two 30-minute episodes. And I was only able to like rent one per week. And that's how I saw this like 26 episode series when I was 12. Uh, those tapes, by the way, were like, what, over 30 bucks? Like uh, VHS tapes were expensive yeah. back then, like 40 yeah. bucks and plus. Um, that was just a complete ripoff. But that was how I saw the series and it changed my life forever. So this is one of my top five TV shows of all time. If you take one of my TV, like any of my recommendations from this year, uh, make it this one. I think it's great. It's fantastic. I've been revisiting it and it still holds up. And this is an anime series about uh, teenagers who basically have to save the world from giant monsters by piloting giant robots. And if you've seen Pacific Rim, uh, you know, Guillermo del Toro's took a lot of imagery and honestly a lot of concepts from the show um that whole scene of like i think one of the jaegers like punching directly into the wall or into the window is is a shot straight up lifted from this the whole idea of uh what was the term of uh sinking up what they call it drifting uh that 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 was one episode of Neo Genesis Evangelion and uh, Guillermo del Toro turned it into like the core concept of his movie. Like that's how influential this show is. And I will say like describing it, uh, you know, teens saving the world from giant monsters probably sounds like a ton of different anime. I will say this one rises above so much else. Like this is, this is a show that dives deep into its characters. Uh, it is a show about the psychological struggles of these teenagers uh, being forced to do this, basically. And uh, the show takes place in 2015 after a you know, apocalyptic event like killed off half the world's population in 2000. So it's also really wild watching the show now, like after after all our fears of the next millennium, you know, and like of everything that would happen, it is wild to see like, oh, well, you know, we are, we are actually doing a pretty good job of killing off plenty of species on this planet. And there's a climate crisis that could eventually lead to our doom. Uh, it is fascinating seeing all this happen. Uh, I love the show because uh, mainly because of the characters, but also because of its broad mythology. These are teenagers fighting these monsters called angels and they're called angels for a reason. And the show really dives deep into like biblical, um, biblical like themes and plot. Basically, it dives into the Dead Sea Scrolls. And as a teenager who's super into like X Files and like conspiracy theories and stuff, I just ate this up. I ate up everything about the show. I'm surprised uh, it still holds up as much as it does. I think it's a really deep, fascinating show. Even if you're not into anime, I would say this is one worth watching because it shows you the power of animation and the basically just the way um, anime works as an art form. Like the, the show looks and feels like nothing else. Definitely worth a watch. And I'm just glad it's so easily accessible now, right? Like uh, kids these days, they could just hit Netflix and uh, hit play and they get this whole series. <laughs> it's kind of amazing to me. This series has been out of print basically for the past 10 years too. So you haven't even been able to like get it on DVD. The DVDs have been over 200 bucks on Amazon for the past 10 years. So this has been a hard to get thing. That's why it's such a big deal. It's on Netflix and I'm really digging it. I love the easy accessibility. I love that there's a whole conversation restarting around the show and what it means because I think it was one of the first anime series to really dive deep into some of these concepts. It's psychologically rich. Uh, it it really concerns itself with like, you know, the like depression 
and serious issues that these teenagers are going through, uh, their relationships with their families. Like it's all, I, I think for like a, a kind of misanthropic teen, like I was like, it, it all kind of worked very well, but now looking at it, like I see even more to read from both the teen stories and the adults and kind of what they went through. It is so much a show about, uh, generational trauma, um and yeah the expectations that teenagers have too like uh what i love about anime especially like this um when you're a teenager right everything seems like it's the end of the world you know this is this one person isn't your friend or you didn't get to go out with this one person you were rejected and all of a sudden the world is ending i love that the show just always kind of made that all very literal and it's a fun thing too to see um today because this was i think one of the first things where fans revolted when the show ended, like it ends in a really controversial way, I'd say, because uh, they kind of ran out of money uh, by the final few episodes. Some of the plot has to had to be delivered through like stills and just text on the screen. And it got kind of wild and crazy. And fans started sending death threats to the director and to the to the you know other people working on the show. And wow. Yeah, death threats in, in the mid-90s, like fandom got really toxic. This was when the internet was just like bubbling up. So there was internet fandom there. Like I was all in on mid-90s Evangelion fandom. Man, like that I, was I a cannot glorious imagine time a time when the internet was toxic with its fandom. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> oh, but the thing is, like he did a sequel movie, The End of Evangelion, which is also on Netflix too. So once you finish the series, you could go watch that, uh, which kind of rewrites the ending of the show. But he also, he he, he like breaks the fourth wall uh, Hideaki Anno, uh, the director, he puts footage of uh, of the actual death threats on the screen into the movie, <laughs> and then puts put like wow. cameras into theaters of people watching early screenings of the film. So it, randomly throughout the film, like you just see uh, you know shots of inside the inside of uh, Japanese theaters of just the audience watching this <laughs> oh thing. So you're, yeah, you're watching this movie, watching these people watching this thing, and oh man, it's it's. This show is wild. And Christy, I think of all people, I would love for you to take a look at it. Um, I think what is there the thing are people are mad about the music, though. That's the, music, the thing I keep well, seeing. Uh, there, there are some music changes. I think one of the things the show really one of the calling cards of the show for some reason was that at the end of every episode, there was like a karaoke version of Fly Me to the Moon. Mm. And that just became kind of like the thing. It, sure. it was just like a little cute thing the show did. The music all around is awesome, by the way. Like just one of the best scores I've ever heard in any mm -hmm. TV show or movie. Uh, but yeah, they didn't get the rights to Fly Me to the Moon. Uh, like Netflix paid for everything but Fly Me to the Moon. <laughs> I think it's not it's not the biggest deal in the world, but it is. It does remind me of things like when Daria finally showed back up. I mean, that's and, that's, that's stuff, honestly like, it's music. so yeah. dumb, but that's what like held me back. As I said to my husband this weekend, I was like, "Oh, the show's on," and I hear all yeah, these people are into it, but like. Yeah, yeah, okay. you should watch it. Despite now that I know, it just but it made me think of Dario when I bought the box set, and then I was like, "These songs it's are not wrong. as disappointing as that." It's not as disappointing okay. as losing all the background music from Daria. My okay. God, heart broke with that. Yeah. Uh, um, Do you also see this thing about like the the queer erasure going on? Like that there was uh, one of the relationships between the two male characters. There's a really, really bad translation, I yeah. think. So. It, certainly it can feel like queer erasure because um, not not a huge spoiler, but the show deals with the main character uh, who's a teen boy, not very confident in himself and who he is as a person um, and explores his sexuality and kind of it it delves into his queerness. And I think one of the most compelling aspects of the show is how it did that. 
And the translation kind of waters it down a little. So I don't know if it's just translator doing that. Maybe they didn't realize like the impact of those words. Like it, it, it is. So, it one sounds character- like they. It, it actually I did a little reading. It sounds like they. Yeah. It was like almost intentional to make it more ambiguous. Um, I, I've, I, I've noticed some like having watched the original, um, you know, subtitles for the past twenty years. <laughs> my God, um, some of these lines are ingrained in my head, right. and I've seen little all around. Like it's just. I don't know if it's they understood the full impact of that or it feels like they're taking some more flourishes with the translation this this time around. Um, but the the original translation was one character telling Shinji, I love you. And in, in this translation, it's I like you. And the word can be described in both ways. So it's right. It's mm. tough. Yeah. Uh, whatever. Just watch it. Just watch it. This, this show taught me filmmaking. This show made me pay attention to the way shots were composed and the way editing happens and how that tells a story. Uh, it is so good. It is so good. It's a seminal work of art. So I'm, I'm just really glad that everybody can access it so easily now. And not like I did, like uh, picking up a VHS uh, after karate practice once a week mm-hmm. was rough. Yeah. yeah. At a time when uh, you had much less disposable income than you do now. Yeah, it was, so. it was really hard. Yeah, luckily, luckily in Hartford, Connecticut, I had a little uh, comic store called the dragon's den and for some reason they were cool enough to like have a little anime library and rent out tapes at like two dollars a pop so that was pretty great back then and that was my life savior basically oh, you're making me yeah. nostalgia for like the tower records on 68th oh, that yeah. the basement was just all rentals yep. <sighs> i love tower records man i lost yeah. hours in that store it was the yeah. best it was good uh the, the even tom hank's son this is this is something we don't reflect on enough. Tom Hanks' son made a documentary about how awesome Tower Records is. That that is a true fact about this world. Anyway, um, Devendra, what else have you been watching? Watch Watch Evangelion. That's that's the main takeaway here. <laughs> okay, so you're, 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 you're skipping the rest of what we've been watching though. <laughs> yeah, just, just just do that. Um, I also saw Shadow, uh, Zhang Yimou's uh, latest film, uh, which he hasn't done like. I think he's done several action films and then he's kind of uh, was the last one, the great wall, right? That was him. Um, He's a strange filmmaker to me because I feel like um, I remember his early stuff back in the day, like some of his uh, earlier films. I'm thinking, is that like raise the red lantern? I think that was him. Yeah. That was like, that's 1991. He was making these really interesting Mm -hmm. uh, period Chinese films. And then like, uh, I think post crouching tiger, He's like, I'm going to do my Wuxia film. And he made Hero, which I think is one of the most like glorious, epic uh, martial arts films ever made. uh, Thanks to the full support of the government of China, basically, like make that thing happen. And certainly to change the ending of that movie. But uh, that movie is glorious to watch. I think it's a seminal work. Um, I don't think Shadow is up to that level. But honestly, I don't think any of his other uh, martial arts films have been either. Uh, House of Flying Daggers is a gorgeous movie. has a great like core relationship. I just I never really loved that movie. I saw Curse of the Golden Flower, which is uh, it was like a I think it was a Shakespeare retelling uh, with uh, with Chow Yun Fat and beautiful movie that just felt completely empty. Shadow deals mostly in court intrigue. So in some ways, it feels like it feels like several episodes of Game of Thrones kind of boiled down into uh i I don't know two hours and i'd I'd say a lot of the intrigue i don't really care that much about but i find the characters really interesting and uh it builds to this uh action set piece that i think is fantastic 
it's certainly unique and something we've never really seen before. I have two words for you folks. Umbrella blades. <laughs> I'm excited. Like, I'm on board. Blades. Like, that's it. Um, it's also... I feel like these reviews are meant to hook me specifically also. Oh, you man. and Jim Jarmusch. It's not Jim, okay, Devendra. Half of this movie does kind of feel like a Jim Jarmusch take on, like, ancient Chinese court intrigue in a way. Sold. So meandering. So, like, confusing. Seem, seemingly on purpose. Uh, the other great thing about this film is that it looks astounding. It is... It is monochrome to the point of being practically black and white, which is, uh, first of all, astounding to see from Zhang Yimou, because this is a guy who he he just lives color like he is. His films are usually so bold and so dynamic and colorful, uh, especially like Hero, uh, think, even um, even House of Flying Daggers, like the, the greens in those movies, the the colors of the leaves flowing in Hero are so bold. This it's fascinating to see him be a little more subdued here. And some backdrops even seem like they're watercolor animation. So it's just it's a really unique looking film. I'm glad to see him kind of experimenting again. Uh kind of makes me want to go see The Great Wall, which I, I didn't see just because it looked kind of uh dull and it wasn't even for the Matt Damon reasons. It's just like I just wasn't really into that. Um I'm glad he's coming back around and doing these sorts of things because I think for the longest while too like he was basically like china's uh, state director you know he was like the guy they called on to like direct uh what was it the the olympics mm-hmm. did the beijing olympics opening which is uh, one of the most terrifying displays of human power <laughs> in a very long time um so yeah I, I love that he's back in this this is a great movie unfortunately i don't think the movie is playing in many places it's only at the ifc center in new york it was and... on limited release a while ago actually okay um okay. so and it will be out on uh, blu-ray i believe later this summer so yeah. uh yeah I, I pre-ordered the uh 4k uhd blu-ray uh it looks like it'll be out on august 13th so i'm looking forward to it Right. And yeah, get a big screen for that. If, you, if you're still in theaters near you, it's definitely worth checking out. I saw it kind of like half sleepy uh, the other night. And that's actually the perfect dream state to see a movie like this, honestly. All right. That's Shadow. Just quickly, uh, shout out to Los Spookies on HBO. I love the show. It's fantastic. It is, uh, what was it, Fred Armisen and Julio Torres, who is a young uh, comedian here in New York, and also a writer on SNL. I didn't realize he was there. I've been following his career for a while. This is a fun show about um, a group of uh, friends in Mexico who are kind of goth, and they like to create spooky scenarios, like things to just freak people out. So it's sort of like Napoleon Dynamite in the sort of like uh, weird humor meets, uh, meets like goth basically or like Wes Anderson meets Goth. It is hilarious. The humor is dry as hell, uh, but so much fun. And it's mostly in Spanish too, which is fun to see in like a mainstream HBO show. So definitely check that out. It's got my seal of approval. All right. That's Los Espookies. It's on HBO. Uh, all right. I, I had some stuff I've been, I've been watching, but like, I do want to get to our review of uh, Toy Story 4. So we'll cover it next week. Um, in the meantime, before we get to our review of Toy Story 4, we want to thank all the people who donated to the podcast this week. Thanks to Zachary Y. and Heather K. from Toronto, who writes the following with her donation. Heather K. writes, Donating from Toronto for my friend's birthday, Max has always been there for me since we met more than 10 years ago. 
This is way too cheesy, but I'm sharing partially to embarrass him and also remind him how thankful I am for him. He was the one who encouraged me to get help at the worst of my depression four years ago and got me to speak to a professional, but also listened when I said I wanted to find more hobbies and things to do to get me out of the dark cloud, pushed me to sign up and train for my first 5K run, and knew about my love of movies, so suggested I listen to a podcast called The Slash Filmcast. I feel like you guys and Max have been there for me through all the steps of getting out of that dark time, so I'm grateful for this. That message comes in from Heather K. from Toronto. Heather, thank you so much for that kind message, and thank wow. you also um, to That's Max. Awesome. Yeah, thanks yeah. to Max for yeah. uh, suggesting the podcast. Happy birthday uh, to Max, and uh, we really appreciate all of your donations. If you want to support what we do here on the podcast, you can go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash filmcast. You can also go to slashfilm.com, use the slash filmcast tab, and use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Let's move on to our review of Toy Story 4. Everyone, Bonnie made a friend in class. What a oh, she's already making friends. No, no, she literally made a new friend. I want you to meet Forky. Uh, hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. Ah. <gasps> He's a spook. Yes, yeah, I know. Forky is the most important toy to Bonnie right now. We all have to make sure nothing happens to him. Woody, we have a situation. I am not a toy. I was made for soup, salad, maybe chili, and then the trash. Buzz, we've got to get Forky. Affirmative. Why am I alive? You're Bonnie's toy. You are going to help create happy memories that will last for the rest of her life. Huh? What? That was from the trailer for Toy Story 4. When a new toy called Forky joins Woody and the gang, a road trip alongside old and new friends reveals how big the world can be for a toy. Uh, This is the fourth series in this franchise. This one is directed by Josh Cooley. And, uh, you know, I think there were a lot of doubts about this film going into this weekend. I mean, uh, Toy Story 3, which came out nine years ago, uh, really felt like it, it... was a good ending for the franchise, mm-hmm. right? It felt like, hey, that was a good, uh, that was a solid conclusion to this franchise that's been with us for a really long time. Uh, and really nice job, Pixar. Really nice job wrapping it up thematically and giving us a satisfying ending. Um, and so when I heard that there was a Toy Story 4, I felt like this would probably feel like a soulless cash grab. It would f- probably feel like, oh, hey, we're just, we're like extending this story past its natural life. Uh, because uh, we know that the Toy Stories can make a ton of money. Uh, and so my question for you, Christy, to start with is, does this movie feel like a soulless cash grab, or does it give us something new for the Toy Story franchise? I mean, those things are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> uh, there are some aspects of this that very much feel uh, aimed at money. However, uh, I was one of the people that was not excited about Toy Story 4 because uh, I thought that they concluded really beautifully with 3 and I thought like well what more story is there to tell and then I saw 4 and I was like all right, well well played well played Uh, because this story is nuts but also when I rewatched the first 3 films I realized how and obviously I don't think that they I don't think that they were always this was always end game I absolutely don't think so however I think that they did a really good job of looking back at what they had already created mm-hmm. and from the rumors about this hobbled together a bunch of in development scripts for the sequel 
and made something that makes a lot of sense. Um, and we can get more into this uh, as we move in. But like the whole concept of Forky like might seem totally out of left field, but like his whole, like the reoccurring discussion of trash and the reoccurring discussion of what happens to a toy when a child no longer wants it has occurred in every one of these movies. And it's taking us to new places within that storytelling and within that journey of Woody specifically. And I was really delighted by how the world expands in this film. And even, even some things that I was afraid I thought were going to be really pandering because they're like, and Bo Peep's back and now she wears pants. And I was like, okay, I know that I'm supposed to be like, oh my God, yay, girl power. Because it's like, yeah. But uh, I was nervous that it was going to be like Bo Peep is, you know, shows up and gives lip service to feminism and talks about STEM for 25 seconds and we're supposed to act like that's a character. But I think that they actually did a really good job of filling out these characters that they do bring to the new story and creating these worlds outside of what we know as like the safe little like suburban area that is Toy Story's normal terrain. And I was really delighted and surprised. All right. Well, it sounds like you enjoyed it. How about you, Devendra? Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. I mean, it certainly still feels like, man, wouldn't it be great if we just made another Toy Story movie? Like, I don't think the the need for this movie always right. felt like it was there. But mm-hmm. it is astounding to me, like, what, Toy Story 2 came out in 1999. Toy Story 3 came out, uh, what, nine, nine years ago, right? 2010. And now, yeah, nine years later, we have this one. So, as far as cash grabs go, I feel like, uh, especially Disney, right? Uh, they've been far more aggressive around things like maybe Star Wars that they want to sell up immediately. So I love that they've taken their time with the series. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed this movie, but I'll admit I'm not I'm not like a huge Toy Story fan. And I know a lot of people like grew up with these movies. I just I just didn't. It was not really in the repertoire of things I was really watching. Uh, I like them and I respect them quite a bit. And uh, Toy Story three, I thought was a really good ending. I think this one, uh, you know, it adds some great new things. I don't feel like it's entirely groundbreaking, but it still managed to uh, to make me cry a few times. Uh, mostly, mostly things. Oh man, there, there's a scene early on of with the main kid in this movie just alone in kindergarten class, and it it yeah. certainly made me tear up. Um, just because like I can imagine uh, my daughter going through that and how scary and sad that whole situation is going to be for everybody. So, yeah, you got me there. Toy Story. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff. It's Kana- right in the baby. <laughs> yep. Jeff Kanata. Uh, what are your thoughts on Toy Story 4? Well, Dave, <laughs> I guess you could say my thoughts about Toy Story 4 are best summed up in the form of a limerick. How appropriate. Yeah. Every Toy Story has been really good. But a fourth one, wasn't sure that they should. But it's smart what they did. It's not even for kids. This Toy Story is about parenthood. Nice. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. I yeah. really nice like enough. how these movies taken as a, a group, taken as a series, are kind of about the process of growing up, right? They are yeah. about... You know, three is very much about moving beyond our toys, moving into late adolescence slash young adulthood and the toys having to deal with that. Um, but, it, you know, it really is a a reflection on it. what's so emotional about Toy Story 3 for me is that that remembering the joys of youth and time passing and realizing that you leave those things behind, right? Um, 
And each step of this journey in this series has been that. And this one really does feel to me like it's a story about Woody being a parent. And not only to the human children, the human child that he feels so connected to, but to Forky as well, uh, who behaves very much like, I'm sure, Devinjara, you can relate, a, mm -hmm. you know, babies want to kill themselves real bad. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. I don't know. How, I honestly, I, I don't know how we survived as a species because babies try to kill themselves so often. I, I, that was our evolutionary parenting bond, basically. Like, you can't just abandon this thing. You got you to gotta take care of it for a little while, unlike yeah. most other animals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This thing wants to die. You know, it wants real bad. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that that, you know, Forky uh, trying to be trash is, is, is very much um, evocative of that point. Um, it, it's a. It's a beautiful movie. It's a, it, I, I really like it. It's odd, though, and I think you guys were speaking to this point, and uh, I maybe um, felt some of the things you guys were feeling for a very specific reason. I don't know if it resonates with you guys, but it, there are movies like this, and Toy Story 4 is one, where the entire movie takes place as we're headed somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so the whole thing feels like, okay, well, we just got to get past this to get to where we're actually going, mm -hmm. you know, but no, that's the whole movie. The whole movie is a detour, not to the destination, like the whole family gets in the car and goes to a place, but they don't get there. They get to this pit stop along the way and the entire movie takes place at the pit stop. Right. So it feels very unsatisfying because we never get to the actual place. And so it feels like this is just a side story on our way to the real story, but no, this is the real story. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that a bit, I don't know. There's something about that when movies do that, that feels a little unsatisfying and, and I, you know, it feels like it, that doesn't have the full weight of a real tale, real story. Um, but the ending of this movie, you know, they land in, in such a great place that it does feel like a conclusion, potential conclusion to this series. Although three felt like that too. So who knows? Um, but overall, you know, it is, it, it, I think it's a, as Pixar seems, uh, capable and, uh, wanting to do every time it's showing off what they're capable of doing purely on a technical level with CG. I mean, there's a scene early on that takes place in the rain, almost only to show off how awesome they can make rain look now. You know, it just, it's, it's incredible. And then there's like a, another scene at a sandbox where all the grains of sand are individually rendered. And it's oh, like, man. wow. I mean, Toy Story one to this is, is just a, you know, a massive all, it, leap. It is kind of hard to watch Toy Story one yep. at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Such stuff. But you remember uh, like when PlayStation three was coming out, they're like, we'll have Toy Story <laughs> level <laughs> graphics. You know, it was like the end all be all of what it but Toy Story be. went previs. That's what we really need. <laughs> yeah. I think you can, uh, you can see the difference most clearly. Uh, if you compare the dog in Toy Story one with the cat in Toy Story four. Oh, the like, cat in Toy Story 4 looks photorealistic. Photorealistic. Mm -hmm. Photorealistic. And Scud in Scud Toy Story 1 <laughs> does not does not hold up. Does does not does not even have fur basically. Um so yeah, I mean, it's come a long long way since Toy Story 1. Um but uh yeah, Jeff, you're you're about to finish, right? No, yeah, I I, I mean, it, I really enjoyed the movie and I I think um it's weird to have a four movie 
you know, trilogies seem to be the the order of the day. But this this while it did feel a little weird and not a full tale, the the, the place that it lands is very satisfying, and it just. It's uh, they manage to make these into beautiful movies every time and ones that make you reflect on your own life. I'm I'm a big fan of this series overall. Yeah, I'll say I really enjoyed myself at Toy Story 4. It did not feel like a cash grab. Um, I uh, I thought it was very clever for them to bring back Bo Peep uh, and what what they did with that character uh, felt right to me. Like it felt or not right, but it felt like uh, a, a feasible version of what could have happened. Because if you mm-hmm. remember from Toy Story three, I think Woody makes an oblique reference to like all the friends they've lost along the way, of which Bo Peep is one. And mm-hmm. so you, 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 there was always this blank about like where whatever happened to that character. And I love that this movie kind of filled that in in an interesting way. Um, and yeah, I, I had a great time at the theater. I cried a little bit. I agree with Jeff. I don't know why more people. I, I feel like not enough people are talking about the fact that it is, it is very clearly a a parenting allegory, in my opinion. Um, very clearly, I, like I, a, a, the whole thing of Forky being asked to be picked up. Like uh, everything, what he is doing is very clearly uh, shepherding this child. His, I loved his uh, shocked awakening into existence which feels like a terrifying thing for mm-hmm. a children's movie, but it is the whole birthing process. And then Woody pulls him out of a bag. Yeah. You know, like it's <laughs> it's a birthing experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I saw this piece by Jen Chaney over at Vulture about how this movie is about like baby boomers and like how baby boomers need to learn to get out of the way and let the new generation take over. And like that's Woody's role. And I was just like, Whoa, like people are reading, like have readings of this that I just didn't even conceive of. I mean, yes, it is very much about like getting out of the way, but it really felt like, uh, like about parenthood because Woody gives this whole speech, uh, towards the beginning of the film about how like kids, they grow up and they do all these things that you don't even see and don't even understand anymore. And it's like, it's about like, Woody's journey of letting go, right? That's what this, yeah, it's, it's what every parent realizes is that your life is, over your function is now to provide a starting runway for this new life to right. begin, and yeah. and that's really so, what Woody realizes. The final movie will just be all those like fake animals they have in retirement homes, and how they like sue the seniors before they die. That's, I think yeah, that's Toy Story think, Five. I think Toy Story Five is Buzz Lightyear living <laughs> the bachelor life and like. <laughs> Just loving the fact that he is no, you know, no entanglements, no, no, no significant other. He's just yeah. like buzz. Uh, out totally free world. because there's nobody left because uh, humanity has died. Yeah. Like, I it, will it, say it's... that was a that was a disappointment in this movie for me is that like I felt like they just completely flushed that Buzz Lightyear character down the toilet metaphorically. Like, yeah, in, in the sense like that Disney just wanted to distance themselves from Tim, Tim Allen. Allen. <laughs> it felt like he it was like. You're right. I felt it. I felt this feeling that Buzz is a side character. He is persona non grata in this franchise because uh, I thought they had made him into like a relatively intelligent, noble character in Toy Story 2 and 3. And he is a moron in this film. Like he, and he also has very little to do. He yeah. doesn't do anything. Yeah. But if you look, if you look back at Toy Story 2 and 3, they give him gimmick stuff to do. Like I yeah. don't think yeah. that Buzz has a lot of range i mean like in two that's when they uh that's when he they they have a second buzz who is like demo mode buzz too to like do all the fun stuff including the star wars reference so because like other buzz can't do all that silly fun stuff if he's actually on mission and then in toy story 3 they uh set him back to demo mode 
and then they turn him into Spanish Buzz. And like, you know, it's like it's it's we don't get to like it's not really about Buzz's evolution was the first movie. Buzz hasn't really evolved much since then. Like Buzz is happy to be a toy, happy to be friends with Woody. Jesse's pretty cool. Like he doesn't have a lot of growth to do. So I think it's really smart. They sidelined him, especially because this movie isn't about him and Woody. Mm -hmm. It's about Woody having to accept a new stage of life. And I, I I totally get now where all this parenting stuff comes from, but you guys are like, it's about parenting. And I was like, what? Like I didn't, (laughs) I mean, and and, you know, maybe it's because I'm not a parent. I didn't watch it with that like experience being brought to it. But like, I was really amazed at how to me, the film felt so much about when you feel like your control of your life is spiraling out of your grasp. And like, Woody, like Woody, try like basically Woody clings to Forky not because he like he is his parent I mean him and Bonnie created her like Frank Forky together like Frankenstein style which I love that like Forky is a whole Frankenstein narrative like ate that up but like that Woody basically like clings to him so that he has a role in the playroom because he's not being played with anymore and he's not Mm -hmm. ready to like be cast aside with the toddler toys and like, I really liked how this became about kind of realizing I, and that, that's why I think the boomer argument makes sense to me, mm-hmm. but also just the idea about like that there are points in your life where you have to acknowledge that a chapter is closing. Like being with Bonnie is not what being with Andy was for him. And even if it was, even if Bonnie got to the, Bonnie got to the point where like Andy, she's like, Oh, I might take this toy to college. Like then what? I mean, it's but yeah. like there's always going to be a change for Woody. And what I liked was as as perfect as I felt Toy Story 3's ending was when I watched it again under the context of having seen Toy Story 4, I was like, oh, that actually doesn't answer the question, though. Like this answers the question of like, what if Woody's worst fear that he is he is rejected? He is trash. What if that happens? What if he loses everything that he associates with being his identity? Like, then what? And I really mm-hmm, loved mm-hmm. how it talked about the freedom of that, because I think it does speak to people on a lot of levels. And I feel like Bo is a really good representative of that, where, like, you know, Bo, when, when he says, oh, my God, you're a lost toy. And, like, he says it like it's, you know, a four-letter word. And she's like, yeah, I'm a lost toy. And, like, honestly, and I was kind of teasing somebody because of a miscommunication in a Slack earlier uh, where like I was talking about Pride Day stuff and somebody else was talking about Toy Story and like the messages came at a weird moment <laughs> and someone was like, wait, so are we saying Toy Story 4 is, is is a LGBTQ narrative? And I was like, I mean, Bo does have an alternative lifestyle according to Woody. <laughs> and I'm like, again, it's like that can be seen as stretching and it's literally something I thought about an hour ago and was like, I mean, that actually kind of plays. I'm like, But that's what I like so much about this movie is I think they thought a lot about how to tell a story that can speak to a lot of things. Cause it's ultimately about choosing new chapters in your life and being exposed to your fears and like all these things. And like, I just really love the moment where Forky looks at Woody and says like, Oh, we're both trash. And like, that is the thing that Woody fears so much. And I Mm -hmm. think that there's something really powerful about somebody saying the thing you're afraid is true. And then being like, I'm okay still. Like yeah. the thing I'm afraid of happened and I'm okay still. And I thought that it was a really powerful journey to watch Woody become the thing that he has been afraid of being since he fell out the window in Toy Story One. <laughs> let me ask yeah. you let me ask you this. Uh I have seen all these tweets being like, Oh my gosh, Forky is amazing. I love Forky so much. And I'm just like, I, I just don't 
get it. I mean, yes, it's like an adorable, uh, uh, an adorable character design, and it's like a very DIY aesthetic. And of no, course, it, it seems honestly, it seems purposefully bad too. Like when I first saw that character design, I was like, "Are they trolling us? Are they <laughs> yeah. like we are? We just very, ran out of ideas. Here's a here's a sentient fork. Here's a eat it up. You're still eat gonna it buy it for your kids yeah. for twenty bucks a pop." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's very Mr. Bill is an actual to me. Toy. Yeah, it's twenty dollars. <laughs> what is Mr. Bill? Oh no, oh. Mr. Bill! Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Am I the only one old enough to know Mr. Bill? Okay, yeah, that's old Saturday Night Live. That <laughs> it's Eddie like Murphy, uh, it's Joe like, Biscopo years. It's like a cruder version of Mr. Bill. And I, I guess mm-hmm. my question is, uh, like, do you get it? Like. Because for me, that, that is one of the like, yes, it's a it's cute character design. Tony Hale does a great job voicing him, but that is it is one of the least interesting characters of this film. Dave, yes. are you asking if we're cool? Yeah, Not I'm asking if you are cool like the rest of the kids. That's correct. I love Forky. I, I I thought I would hate Forky. I hated the initial teaser where they're like, "Here's all the toys you know," and then here's this weird spork that we're calling Forky <laughs> for reasons, which in the movie it makes sense to me. But like when they yeah. announced that, I was like, "I know this is a dumb thing to get hung up on, but why?" And like whatever. But what I liked about it it's is almost that, like a kid made it. Yeah. Right. 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 And I I liked a lot about Forky as the story unfolds. Uh, First off, I do like the Frankenstein narrative, which is that, like, he was cobbled together by two people who were more excited about kind of the process of it than, like, what would happen next. Like, Bonnie has no concept that she made a living thing. Bonnie is a god. It's a story (laughs) about a god. Well, Bonnie and and Woody, like, it's like Woody gave her the pieces, including the fork, which I don't think was in the craft supplies. I think it was just in the trash. So, like, that makes sense why he's just like, I'm trash. Like, he's not craft supplies, he's trash. Are we we to assume that the, the necessary element for life is googly eyes let's 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 get we're gonna get to that in the spoilers yeah. Yeah. googly to, eyes is all it takes david i, no, I have to, some googly I have, eyes i have stuff to say about it in the spoilers but but, yeah. but um, christy why don't you finish your thought sure so my frankenstein thing is that i think that it's like and then like frankenstein you have forky trying to figure out what his existence is and where does he fit and how does he make sense and like he doesn't feel a part of this world that everybody's telling him he's a part of he doesn't feel connected to it he needs someone to guide him through it also children love him and uh, and then in the in I won't get the specifics, but there's even a reference to Frankenstein in like the post credit stuff, which I thought was like when I like when I put that together, I was so excited. <laughs> I was like, they totally know what they're doing here. Like this is talking about like a concept of like being in existence. But I think it also totally fits with your arguments about like it being you know a child because it you know Frankenstein was a child. It's a similar argument. Um, but yeah, and I, I think Tony Hale brings a lot to that character. I think Tony Hale can do a lot with silly words like him just saying "bo." I could have listened to on a loop. But also, I felt like it was that they managed to bring something so silly and so instantly memeable because mm-hmm. I a hundred percent just want a gif of Forky saying "trash." Like it's just I can use it every day. I love it. But also that they put a real nuance into the character when he and Woody had that little heart to heart. I went from being like, oh, this character's funny to being like, oh, this character maybe felt something. And it's a friggin spork colored with marker. Yeah, well, I mean, my I think favorite that's character, David, my favorite character in the whole movie is uh, the G.I. Joe that doesn't get the high fives. <laughs> poor, poor uh, white outfit G.I. Joe. Yeah. That, Twice. Yeah. Twice. That best. The best. All right. I, I have more thoughts on this movie, but it sounds like we all pretty much enjoyed it and uh i'm glad for that uh the movie underperformed per expectations it made more money than toy story 3 on its opening weekend uh which was nine years ago 
But uh, I think people were expecting like up to 160. Disney itself predicted around 140. It made around 118 in reality, I think. Uh, which it's been a rough summer for box uh, for box office and also for movies themselves. Uh, we are only about halfway through. We'll see what happens the rest of summer. Uh, but before that, let's get to spoilers for Toy Story 4 starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... They're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. I mean, we haven't really talked about the metaphysical implications of Toy Story, but uh, they're <laughs> horrifying. I mean, like... There's a great article in Slate.com uh, called Toy Story 4's Forky Has Haunting Metaphysical Implications for the Toy Story Universe. I'll uh, link to it in the show notes. I'd recommend you read it. Um, but it, it essentially asks the question, right, like at what point does toy sentience begin? Uh, I would argue that it's with like the writing of the the name on the feet. Jeff the Kanata, you were asking earlier. Kiss. The name uh, of the kiss, yeah. like she literally kissed it into existence. Yeah. Well, either way, she is she is a god, and yes. she ha- she yes. wields her power without respect to its potency, yeah. and knows not what she re- has wrought on the world. Yeah, uh, she is a she is to be feared, and uh, she runs amok, and we don't know what else she will create, what other lives she will destroy in the in the process. Uh, Bonnie yeah, must be stopped. Maybe Toy Story Four is a metaphor for actual uh, real life existence. You know that, uh, the, the, uh, you know, um, to quote uh, the Tempest, uh, "As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods; they kill us for their sport." Mm-hmm. You know, of course, um, of course, that's you why, did that, Dave. That's why life yeah. is so chaotic. But, but seriously <laughs> though, like uh, here, here, here are a, just a few. Of the troubling things that Toy Story Four brings up, like number number one, right? Like, uh, w- what point is a toy a toy? Like, and and we see like later, like he's got a little pipe cleaner on him, and like so that's like part of him now. But the thing is, uh, he clearly recalls being trash, right? So, mm-hmm. d- do toys remember like the things that their parts? Yeah, the component states. The component yeah. states, you yeah. know? And then later on, right, um, Bo Peep is like, hey, uh, wh- why would you want to be inside of a of a toy chest when you could have all this? And she, like, gestures to the world, and it's this amazing free universe. And so is the idea that toys can feel claustrophobic, like, they can experience true freedom, but that, like, the vast majority of toys... Uh, are forced, like, consigned to live, like, kind of a slave-like existence. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, they love it. A lot Dave, of this has been it. addressed in the past movies, though. <laughs> like, please, I mean, please. really. Because, like, they talked about uh, Jesse didn't want to go to the attic. She didn't want to be put in a box again. That's, like, that's addressed in Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3 when they get put into the trash bag because, you know, Andy's a teenage boy who doesn't know how to put anything away properly. Uh, they address the concept of like death for toys they fear is becoming trash but then at the end of toy story 3 when they're actually in a trash compactor like death becomes very real and it's not just being in a grunt junkyard like it and even the sentience thing was addressed in um it might be toy story 3 now because i watched them all kind of in a block but and uh woody mentions oh it must be three because he says when we get put in the attic we can hang out with the christmas ornaments you guys love those 
And right. so it's it's not that everything is sentient. And I understand where people are trying to, to pinpoint the moment where, where Forky comes to life. But like Forky wouldn't physically come to life in her hands because that's not how toys work. Mm-hmm. I think it's more that within the narrative of the story between the Christmas toys and even between if you look in this movie where Bo Peep is considered a toy, even though she's part of a lamp and she has um, little like porcelain dolls that are not something you would really like consider a toy they're mm. more like figurines that are on that count off how old molly is there's one for every age it's like a keepsake thing they also interact and move with the barbie dolls and i feel like what the implication is is that anytime a child interacts with the toy as a plaything, that's when it's like it's definitely a toy which i mean is i think it's i think it's when they're loved Right. That's the idea. No, because is that there, when something there are is toys loved. that haven't been loved because like um, mm-hmm. uh, that was the whole thing with Stinky Pete. He lived in the box, but he's acknowledged as a toy. Like clearly at some point he was acknowledged as being a play thing, but he's never been played with. And that's like his whole deal in Toy Story 2. Mm-hmm. I well, like how this movie basically it is it is questioning existence in a really deep way. Right. Are you are you only trash because, you know, you were you were made out of trash? And what is what is your main purpose as a toy? Uh, I do think it's asking deeper questions than the other movies in the series, even though it doesn't get, I think, as dark as that trash compactor scene. It's in Toy pretty Story dark. Movie. That was I mean, so we dark. Even, we haven't even Man. talked about the ramifications of having your voice box forcibly removed from you. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, some weird toy surgery uh, body dysmorphia horror scene, you know, like it's uh it's it gets pretty dark and those those ventriloquist dolls are straight oh, up man. horror dude that's like yeah that's a haunting image if there ever was one uh also, also christy you say that the previous movies address those things i said uh i when you say addressed i mean yes it does it does acknowledge that the, the things i said but that that is still horrifying like jesse not one of you put up and you know sure s- uh stinky mm-hmm. pete saying like hey do you want to like rot in a landfill for eternity that 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 is st- still horrifying, you know. Um, no, no, totally. Though, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my argument is just that people are acting like this is new stuff to Toy Story, where I feel like a lot of it is that a lot of us came into these movies when we were kids. And so, like, because I mean, I actually just wrote a piece that went up on Sci-Fi Today. Uh, I think it's called like the. 15 most deranged things that happened in Toy Story movies. But this has always been there. I mean, like, Woody was afraid of being dismembered and eaten in the first movie because he went and met Sid's toys and he thought that they were, like, mutants and horrible. And then he realized that there is uh, a version of toys he doesn't understand, which are toys that have literally been combined into hybrids. And then in the second movie, he learns about the idea of being, like, put away. And then in the third movie, they learn about the idea of, like, literally being destroyed. Like, these, these movies have always had an element of darkness to them, which I think is why they're so powerful. I think that we remember the cheery, bright stuff because they're colorful, adorable toys. But even the movies that I think uh, we probably clung to in our greater youth, like when the first Toy Story came out, I think I was like in, I was in seventh or eighth grade. And I was at the point where it wasn't really cool to admit you were watching cartoons anymore, but this was different because it was a computer cartoon. (laughs) So like everybody was super into it. Um, But like we were at the edge of that not being cool anymore. But like, you know, when I was a kid, like, the stuff I clung to the deepest was the stuff that also acknowledged things that scared me. So like the idea of being lonely, the idea of whatever death was like, it seemed terrible. And Mm -hmm. like, I think that children need a safe space to be told that like, it makes sense that they're afraid because I think that we too often as a society try to repress or push past a feeling instead of acknowledging that feeling first. And if you can just acknowledge like in this movie where Woody recognizes his fear of like, what if I'm trash? 
And by just recognizing that, like, then he can get through it. And I think I was telling somebody uh, the other day that I feel like so much about what this movie is about is about the journey of how hard it can be to get through that kind of whatever the change of life is. Mm -hmm. But like, Mm -hmm. first, you have to recognize what you're afraid of about it, because if not, you're just, you know, and that's interesting because Woody's always a bundle of nerves and always has to be in control and is always trying to fix things. And this is a situation where, like, there are things that he can't fix. There are things he cannot be in control of. And he has to let go. Like, there's nothing for him to fix in the end. You know, like mm-hmm, once he's mm-hmm. he's we're in spoilers, I'm OK to talk about third act stuff. Yep. OK, so like Gabby, Gabby, like once he finds her a kid, like he's good. He doesn't there's not there's nothing else to solve. And he can kind of just go like literally go off into the sunset and and whatever his adventures are like, he's not responsible to anybody anymore. And that's kind of a terrifying but exciting thing. And I think that's the kind of the terror that this movie is dealing with. It's just I really love that moment, by the way, like the, the Gabby Gabby thing, like it didn't end the way we kind of thought it would. Like it, it's mm-hmm. not like a nice, neat bow and there's character growth for her and for Woody too. I think recognizing the fact that, oh, she's choosing this for herself and this kid actually needs help right now. And yeah, yeah, he, he doesn't always have to take care of this other one child who he's worked so hard in the movie to try to please. Uh, there's a lot going on there. It's all good. Yeah. Well, I liked how, uh, I, I mean, re- again, reinforcing this idea that the movie's about parenthood. Towards the end of the movie, uh, Woody sacrifices his voice box for Gabby so mm-hmm. that she can kind of be with her kid. And uh, then, like, she finally gets to talk to the kid through the voice box. And then the kid's like, eh, no thanks. Uh, and I, I really <laughs> felt like it, it drove home the notion that children, uh, you, you can sacrifice everything for a child. Uh, mm-hmm. And in the end, they may still betray you. Like, that they're... You're, they're you're <laughs> describing my evening tonight <laughs> right that their uh their needs and their wants are fickle and arbitrary and capricious i know i just use like synonyms for you know the same concept and uh and that uh, they will break your heart despite uh, all that you sacrificed uh, that you can like torture people and uh <laughs> become a terrible person all to like make their life better but that uh in the end, it might not end up meaning all that much, you know? So yeah. you think the message of this movie is that children are ingrates? Uh, I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, <laughs> it's a message of this it's movie. It's a message yes. of the movie. But, yeah. but, Perhaps the most important message of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but another message, you know, another message is also that, like, uh, I, I think really what, what the movie's about is about, like, as you said, as you sort of have been describing, Christy, like, being yourself and, like, that being the most important thing, right? Mm-hmm. That, like... Uh, in the at the end of the day, it doesn't matter that she has a voice. I mean, the voice box helps, um, but at the end of the day, it's about like trying your best. It's about accepting who you are, um, and uh, and that that it should be enough. You know, and, I almost uh, speaking of the voice box thing. By the way, I almost kind of wish they had went with like a broken voice for that character or something. Like when she was yeah. actually speaking, because basically Woody giving up his voice box didn't really seem like. Yeah, we know it meant something to him in terms of right. who he was as a working toy, but he could still like interact with all his friends and do everything he could do normally. That's it's just point. he's different when it comes to the other kids. Uh, I kind of kind of would have. I don't know. Maybe it sounds cruel, but something where like he actually had to give up something and he's not the witty we know anymore. And he actually sounds different or something like that. I also like that they effectively let as insofar as the Gabby Gabby is a villain. They let there be a female villain. 
which mm-hmm. is exciting because we haven't seen that yet in a Toy Story movie. Like Sid was sort of the villain of the first one. And then you have Stinky Pete and you have Lotso. But like they, they it, definitely didn't waste any time, by the way, with her. It's just like, yeah. oh, yeah, she, she's surrounded by these creepy dolls. She's also, bad. Like, dude. Design, well, even her design is is off putting for uh-huh. a moment. And it took me a second to figure out why. And it's because I remember those dolls. And it's like she doesn't full on have the blinking eyes that Big Baby <laughs> did in the second or third movie. But she has the ones where they like tilt a little and the the shimmer of the eye is just a little creepy. I thought that was a really nice threading of the needle where she's cute, but also a little upsetting. And then, yeah, the, but like the, those, those dolls, the, the, the dummies are so, what was funny is I'm sitting in a packed theater that is full of adults and children. And every time the dummies showed up, you heard adults in that theater go. <gasps> yeah. And it was like, yeah. they were just upsetting, especially when they sit like gargoyles and their heads just do the 360 oh, spin, which They're again, so rewatching the movies. To- so brilliant not to have them actually have voices of their own. I yeah. love that. Yeah. No yeah. Which I, that's, that's kind of a plot hole thing. That's weird to me because like the other toys don't require a voice box to have voices. So the idea that ventriloquist dummies don't doesn't make sense to me, but I don't care because it's so effective that the only sound they make is that horrible, like clattering sound of their jaws. And the, the and whole their point of them, goes, right, is that they have no voices. Right. So, yeah, and at one point it go. just goes, uh, yeah. Oh man. <laughs> You know, it's um, it's that goosebumps it's that goosebumps book cover made yeah. into like a movie. Yeah. And that's kind of haunted me throughout sure. my whole childhood. Yeah. Right. And like before that, like that um that movie with Anthony Hopkins, Magic. And I I think there was a even a uh oh man, uh Tales from the Crypt about a dummy. I mean, like dummies are inherently upsetting. Because yeah. like yeah. we want them to look human. It's that uncanny valley thing before we had an uncanny valley to understand. Where you want them to look human enough that it's not weird that they're talking, but you want them to not look inhuman enough that it's clearly an act. And it just puts them in this this neutral zone that when they are not being like when they are not functioning as a tool of a puppet, they are horrifying. And I think that's really fun to kind of see that enacted as, as like minions. And also that they're not ultimately bad. Like in the end when she's like, thank you, Benson. And he just like wanders off. Um, I am curious if that means that, that oh my God, I was going to say, I'm wondering if things were going to change at the toy antique store for the rest of the movie. Yes. We have not talked about Duke Kaboom yet. Yeah. I was going to mention Duke Kaboom. What do we think of Duke Kaboom? He's good. Keanu-sance. Yeah. He's the Canuck with all the luck. He's amazing. It's it's so fun to watch Keanu Reeves like being silly. Like between this and always be my mate my, uh-huh, my maybe uh-huh. this summer, like into it. Yeah, I thought he was a delight. Uh very good. It, it is the summer of Keanu, man. Between Keanu-sance, full full effect, baby. Between all John good. Wick chapter three, uh Cyberpunk, and now this. It's uh it's crazy <laughs> times. Crazy times. It's all coming up, Keanu. Yeah. Um, also Key and Peeler in this movie. And I thought used really well too. Like literally conjoined. Yeah. So great. Yeah. Um I wanted to mention one other thing, uh one other theory that I thought was really interesting. Uh I'll link to this in the show notes. It's uh this piece that John Negroni wrote uh over at his blog. Uh, johnnegroni.com and he was talking about how like uh, he, he, he was reflecting on whether this movie is is ableist right this the, this is this idea of like that Gabby can't be uh, like achieve who she wants to be unless she she actually has her like full voice function mm. um, and I think it's it's interesting to reflect on because like not a lot of people reflect on or not a lot of people reflect on it as it applies to mainstream movies at least I don't I don't see a lot of it online um, 
And John writes about how he was born with a genetic hearing disorder and how he got uh, uh, a uh, hearing aids. And he says, quote here, my version of getting a new voice box was uh, getting hearing aids for the first time. Um, and and he says here, if anyone told me that I shouldn't have gone through what I did in order to get hearing aids simply because people should just love me for me, I'd politely tell that person to mind their own business. Granted, that doesn't have to be the same response for someone else with a different disability, but that's the point. The beauty I saw in Toy Story 4 was in its embrace of other worldviews as plausible and worthy. And the fact that not everyone will want the same things uh, – uh, that not everyone will want the same things you do in life is hard, but a useful lesson to learn. In the scene where Gabby is eventually accepted by a lost child, they are indeed at least partly connected by the voice box working. Uh, I see this as a wonderful moment because for the first time, Gabby is heard for who she truly is. Sadly, mm. not every, everyone can fix something like this. Uh, Woody can't force Bonnie to love him like Andy did. Eventually, he stops trying because he knows she'll be okay without him and he'll be okay without her, end quote. Um, so it's it's a great piece about like, what that final scene means with Gabby, like connecting with that girl at the at the fair. Um, but I, what's been most interesting to me about you know seeing the the discussion around this movie is like I did not think that like Toy Story four would produce this much like this many different interpretations of what it means. And I do think that's the sign of a of a rich film when you have like differing and often conflicting interpretations of what a movie means. Uh, and I actually think that's to the film's credit. So uh, love that there's all this dialogue around the movie. And even on this podcast has been like a, a few differences. Uh, any closing thoughts about the movie? Anyone want to mention before we wrap up here? Uh, sounds like I did. Yeah. I, I know that Devinger brought this up, but um, the sequence where Bonnie goes to kindergarten for the first time, Oh man, it, I mean, that's my Monday, Wednesday, and Friday every week. I mean, I, I took my son today and uh, – or I guess – yeah, today's Monday. Um, and, uh, you know, he clings to my leg when we walk still. Uh, the first week was brutal. But, uh, you know, it's it's something that kids go through. And he, just seeing that depicted so beautifully mm-hmm. got to me. And it's it's a great sequence in the movie. I also hated all those kids in that in that classroom. By the way, it was like a oh, poor Bonnie all alone yeah. on, on her own table, and the kid just like comes and steals her toys too. Like, come on, teacher, pay attention! You should not be letting kids sit alone. What's going on? Uh, a couple a couple of things I want to point out. I think uh, that uh, the the person I felt most bad for, like the person I had the most sympathy for in this movie, was the dad character. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which uh, it just felt like it, can you believe like if all this random shit was happening and you had no explanation like how much that would drive you nuts also yeah the the toys are basically getting homicidal now i, I <laughs> yeah. guess well, just for fun well they say like hey we should put the dad in jail which makes you yeah. wonder <laughs> how many people have been framed for toy crimes in the past mm. right like mm. yeah if in the toys... toy story universe it seems like very common yeah it's it could be infinite. Um, hashtag for Law and Order toys. Hashtag yeah. free the dads. Yeah, yeah. Free the dads. Yeah. And then, uh, but the the thing you know, the the moment that made me cry was when they say goodbye at the end. Like Woody says goodbye to all of his friends, and uh, it, it just reinforces like, hey, we've had these characters in our life. Like there has been more years in my life where Toy Story movies have been coming out, uh, have been being released than than not. Right, like this franchise is now uh been alive for decades 
And uh, this really did feel like okay, they might make there might be a Toy Story five, there might be more adventures, but like that it will be fundamentally different, right? Mm-hmm. Woody will be like out on his own with Bo Peep, like they'll have a whole different life. They're separate for the first time ever, him and the rest of the gang. And uh, I did feel like um, you know it it did. I thought Toy Story three was the end, but really this one is the end, maybe probably. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> let's wait ten years. Yeah, let's wait ten years. We'll see what happens. That's going to bring us to the end of our review. Well, of... Yep, go ahead. Oh well, I, I was just. Uh, I think my final thought on it is that I think that there are all these uh, narratives and metaphors you can pull from the film. But what I really liked about it is like looking at overall a lot of the arcs in it is so much of it is about facing your fears and in various iterations so that like maybe kids will pick up these lessons because like Bonnie's afraid to go to kindergarten, but then she like finds, you know, she creates Forky and she's okay. And like, you know, Woody is afraid to live a life outside of the safety of the life he knows, but he's afraid and he's okay. Forky like faces becoming a toy, like even Duke Kaboom like faces Mm -hmm. his fear of failure and he does something incredible. And like, I think that um, to, to put these stories in so many different ways so that kids can take that in is really powerful. Like I've had my nieces are, are both under the age of uh, five and it's amazing to watch a movie with them because they watch it like they're so locked on. And then after they want to talk to you about it and like they don't just tell you what happened in the movie. They like explain like what they learned and it's just really incredible. Like my older niece watched The Grinch um, when the new Grinch came out. And she said at the end, um, and I guess spoilers for The Grinch if you don't know that. But she said uh, <laughs> he she said he can make friends because he's not mad anymore. And like I thought that that was incredible yeah. for like a yeah. really little kid to pick up. And, um, you know, when I got to I met the producer at some uh, networking event, I was like, I have to tell you, because I was like, I, I also think The Grinch is actually another really powerful story about how to process emotion uh, and that one particularly anger. But like, I think movies like this that are being written by people who clearly understand how to communicate this stuff and how to how to hopefully communicate it to children like I think kids will walk away not just being like that was fun or whatever, but like holding these stories with us, like we held stories with us growing up, but with a much more mindful sense of what children's entertainment is today than it was when we were growing up. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think it's really cool that we as adults get to have this conversation and like tear into it and be like, oh, maybe it's saying this or maybe it's saying this and it could be about this and it could be about this. But I think to a lot of kids, it's going to be about. What do you do when you feel lonely? What do you do when you feel like nobody likes you? What do you do when you're afraid that you're not good enough? What do, you know? And it's like, it gives you little answers to that. And it's like, you're going to be okay. This yeah. is what we do. And like, I, I just think that that's a really beautiful message to send. Mm-hmm. And with like such, you know, a colorful candy cave wrapper where they're just going to keep going back to it. I mean, my nieces have already watched the first three story stories a million times. Like, I'm sure I'll see this a bunch of times more with them. So I'm very excited about that. Good life lesson. Get off the shelf, basically. Yeah. 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 Indeed. All right. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of our uh, review of Toy Story 4 and the end of this episode of the podcast. You can find more episodes of the podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Uh, you can also email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from AdamWarrock.com. Uh, our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. This episode was edited and produced by Baby Zhang. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week. In the meantime, Christy Puchko, where can people find more of your work on the internet? 
I write every day at pajiba.com. I'm on Twitter at Christy Puchko. That's K-R-I-S-T-Y-P-U-C-H-K-O. And uh, I have a lot of stuff coming up uh, between film coverage and traveling. I'm going to go to Fantasia next month for some genre stuff. So if you go to decadentcriminals.com, that's where I collect all of my reviews. And at the end of festivals, I always do a highlights post. So everything I wrote at that festival, you can find in one convenient location since I write for a bunch of sites. Cool. Um, Devendra Hardor, where can find more of your work? Oh, I'm at Devendra on Twitter. I write about tech and gadget.com. I was also on This Week in Tech this week. Uh, you can check that episode out at twit.tv. I knew you were there recently too, Jeff. So yeah, week before, check yeah. out all our stuff. I always love those folks. And also doing a tech podcast at nomoretech.net. That's net, uh, no with a K. How about you, Jeff? Hey, if you're into Game of Thrones or fantasy or Lord of the Rings, give my new show a shot. I am so proud of it. It's called The Dungeon Run. It is a live play Dungeons and Dragons show where I am the dungeon master, which means I'm the storyteller. I'm the guy making everything up and leading a group of adventurers through this wild tale. I, I Like I said, I've never been more proud of something in my entire career. It, it's a blast. These players are awesome. You can find the show on YouTube or as an audio podcast anywhere you get podcasts. But we record it live and stream it Wednesday nights, 6 p.m. Pacific time at caffeine.tv slash the dungeon run. I also do a video game podcast called DLC, which you can find at five by five dot TV slash DLC. And I'm on Twitter at Jeff Canada, which is spelled with two N's and one T. Find all of my stuff at DaveChen.net. Next week we will be reviewing Yesterday, the new Danny Boyle film. Uh, we'll be releasing that review right before July 4th, uh, the holiday, which comes on a Thursday this year. So kind of awkward when it comes to the work holidays. But uh, yesterday is the movie we'll be reviewing on next week's episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. He